This podcast episode is a little different in format. It's a panel discussion about housing, recorded in front of a large audience at Holland East Riding Citizens Advice Bureau's Helping People Through Crisis event. Joining me around the table were Dave Richmond, Hull City Council's Neighbourhoods and Housing Manager, John Craig, Manager for Forward Planning, Housing Strategy and Development at the East Riding of Yorkshire Council, and also Emma Delimore and Sam Bell, Operations Director and Manager, respectively, at Hull and East Riding Mind, the mental health charity. It was an ideal opportunity to hear how two quite different local authorities are responding to housing need, and how other partners, too, are tackling housing and homelessness with a degree of innovation. That was maybe too much to cram into the 25 minutes we had together, so we'll aim to get these guests into a quieter studio sometime soon to dig deeper into the issues raised. But for now, here's what we had to say. I hope you haven't felt that this, this morning's sessions have been all doom and gloom, because if you have, I think we're just about to finish you off. <laughs> so let's give this housing panel discussion some sort of context for you. I moved to uh, the Humber region, uh, to Hull, in 1994. Actually, I was just over the border in the East Riding. I lived at the end of Endike Lane, the Cottingham end. We used to stress that quite a Fancy lot. End. Yeah. <laughs> and um, spelt with a Y, not an R. Indeed, yes. yes. Uh, that's absolutely it. Yeah. So, um, back in 1994, um, we bought a house um, in Lyndhurst Avenue, which cost us the princely sum of £33,500. That was a mid-terraced house, three bedrooms, small garden, and a concrete pad to put the car on at the front. Now, if you go and use the Right Move website, you can check up to see how house prices have changed over the years. And actually, that house now, well, 2017, sold for £98,000. So a 300% increase in house prices over that 25-year uh, period. But look at wages across that period. The median wage um, back in 1994, thereabouts, the median wage was 16,500. And that median wage for 2017 is now only just a little under 24,000. So wages have only increased by 40% across that 25-year period, but house prices have gone up by 300%. On top of that, um, over a 30-year period between, say, the 80s and now, um, back in the 80s, um, when right to buy was really beginning to flourish, we started off with about 6 million people across England in um, council-owned social housing. Now those figures are down to about one million, one and a half million. These guys on my left might be able to update me more on that. So social housing, if you can't afford to buy your own house, that social housing net is very much smaller than it used to be. So that's giving you some sort of context, really about this housing panel discussion that we're having. And so, really, questions to Dave and John. A nice, simple question to start with. 
What can local authorities do to put strategies in place to help these people that are facing this housing crisis? Dave, first, perhaps. Okay. So if you think about the housing market in general, um, think about that in terms of the different tenure mixes you've got. Uh, so you've got obviously home ownership, private rented, uh, and, and social rented. People will be in different circumstances and they may want to go in different elements of those markets. So from a, a, a sort of high level strategy point of view, it's, and from a council perspective, it's how do you intervene across all of those different tenure types to try and ensure that housing is accessible, affordable and of a reasonable quality. So in Hull, um, I mean, I'm assuming many of you are from Hull, you, you can't but uh, fail to see some of the regeneration work that's gone on and the changing that's gone on. In fact, uh, we have in our local plan a requirement for about 650 new homes every year. Last year in Hull there were 1,500 homes built. It's a record year for house building in Hull. So if you walk down Hawthorne Avenue, you walk down Maybury Road, you go on to Orchard Park, you go on to Kingswood, you go on to Ings, you can't fail but see new housing. And somewhere in the region of 33, 34% of that housing in Hull has been built with the intervention of Hull City Council. And I don't just mean by granting planning permissions, I mean by actually getting involved with those developers and actually making sure land's available, uh, site remediation work's taking place, uh, we're bringing in some of the funding to, to drive forward some of that work. So, you know, um, there's a big push on nationally in terms of house building. You'll see that the government has a target to build 300,000 homes a year uh, by the middle of uh, next uh, decade. In Hull, where two, if not three times over, our anticipated need in terms of what we're producing. So we're doing pretty well, uh, frankly, uh, but that is with a lot of hard work from the council. So actually trying to ensure that the homes are there that people want. There's a danger with that though, uh, because if you are from Hull, you'll also know that if you walk down Hesel Road, Annaby Road, Holderness Road, actually what we've got is a vast amount of uh, Victorian terrace properties, you know, relatively cheap, probably two, maybe three bedrooms, terraced. And there's a real danger that actually in Hull, as in many northern towns, that that type of accommodation, which often been at least starter homes, if not long-term family homes for many, many people in this city, actually become undesirable because we're building new and people aspire to go to a new two, three bed on Kingswood or Rings or whatever. So actually there's a real need to ensure that we don't, bring down in some way those areas as well by actually expanding the housing market. So again, one of the things that we are doing is we're invested in some of those properties and we're bringing back into use, sometimes in conjunction with organisations like this one, like Goodwin, like Gyroscope, uh, and other fantastic organisations that are in this city, trying to ensure that the existing house market uh, that is there is supported. And if any of you are whole city fans and you, you walk across Annaby Road into uh, the streets across there, you'll see that actually in some of those streets we've been putting extra skins of uh, wall insulation in to try and make sure that that housing, that really, to be honest, is, is, is of another time, actually still has a lifespan. 
actually people still want to be in there because it's it's warm, it's dry, and it and it and it serves part of the market. So intervening in the private housing sector is critical to to Hull. Uh, equally critical is intervening in those other sectors. So trying to ensure that the private rental sector delivers a high quality, decent offer. And we are just bringing in force uh, new enforcement policies and practices, which uh, we've had some interesting discussions with some of the landlord associations around, about trying to ensure that we're driving up standards in that sector. And, and lastly, from a council house sector, um, Jerome's right, um, you don't have to go too far back in this city to remember a time when there were 40,000 council houses uh, here. Today there's just under 25 and we'll be selling about 300 a year through the right to buy scheme. Uh, so I'm assuming many of you know what that is but if you don't it's basically the tenant's right to buy a property and the council has no right to avoid selling it. So we have to sell and we're selling somewhere in the region of about 300 a year. I'll probably say less than I would normally say at different times of the year, but with an election coming up, I'll, I'll be very guarded what I say. But um, we are doing our best to replace those properties when we sell them. Um, this year, we'll put in about 200 new council housing, but we cannot keep up with the sale of council housing. And, and frankly, nowhere else in the country is doing it either. So in the last month, the government's targets, and they've got some really interesting ways about how they measure these targets. The, the, you know, they talk about a one-for-one -one replacement, but it's, it's a very sort of interesting way in which it's measured, which wouldn't really accord with what you might think one-to-one -one or what I think one-to-one -one is. But even on the government's targets, in the last month, they've failed to get there. So social housing has been lost right across the country. That said, I do think there is a... A, a change in the attitude towards renting, partly in a way on the back of Grenfell. Actually, people recognise that you know you cannot keep running down social housing and not investing in it because it is needed. If you saw what happened at the last election, there was a lot of talk about the, some of the vote being on the back of lack of affordability of housing and, and younger people struggling to get in. So it's back on the agenda, social housing and. Um, as I say, from Hull, we're trying our best to ensure that we're building new social housing as well as assisting those private sector markets. John, um, in a rural area, the East Riding, housing issues must differ somewhat to what Dave has described in a large conurbation like Hull. So can you quite briefly describe how your strategy in the East Riding um, is different and how it is addressing the issues specific to your rural area? Yeah, I think there, there are a lot of uh, common issues that Dave's outlined in terms of the, the nature of the problem. Obviously, East Riding is a very different type of situation. It's a very large, essentially rural area. The housing market varies tremendously across that. So the, the, the pressure that we have in places like Pocklington, uh, West Hall Villages, is very different from the, the pressures that we have in Goole or Bridlington or South, South East Holderness. But top and bottom of it is we, we have a, a real affordability problem across large parts of, uh, of each riding and I think the crucial thing for us there is understanding that sort of the, the variation between different areas which we do through regular updates in terms of our evidence base. I think the important thing that I would, well a couple of things actually that I'd probably just sort of add to in terms of what Dave said, the numbers game in terms of levels of needs. We, we also have a, a local plan which sets out how much new housing is required. We, we have a target of 1,400 houses to be built every year. We're not doing that. We're not building 1,400. 
Partly, that's because Hull's doing well and building more. And that was part of the agreement between the two authorities. So we work very closely to make sure that we're not building too much, which continues that trend of population drift out of the city. But we still need to meet local needs, which is what we seek to do. Within that target of 1,400, again, we have a specific target in terms of uh, affordable housing, which is a big, a big issue for us. We have a target of uh, 300, 350-odd houses every year, which, which have to be affordable. And we do that largely on the back of new development. So market-led development, we require different levels of affordable housing to be provided. And that's probably the principal way that we seek to address the affordability crisis. It doesn't meet the extent of the problem, but it helps, it contributes towards it. Over and above that, in terms of the council's own role, again, we have a, a direct delivery uh, function within the council. We have done well in the past. We, we started off probably five or six years ago with what was seen as probably about the biggest programme for a fairly short period of time in terms of new council house building. Now, that's gone down in terms of the numbers that we're now delivering. It's a very small programme that we've got, but nonetheless, it still makes a difference there. So I think there's direct action we can do. We obviously are still keen to work with the partners, so whether that's developers or housing associations, registered providers, they've got a role to play. But this is a real challenge for all of us. So we're getting the picture that uh, many people are beginning to struggle with housing. Uh, many are just about managing, but others are falling into housing crisis. And of course, um, some people are falling into that level of crisis where they're having to seek help from the statutory authorities. Um, in April this year, the Homelessness Reduction Act came into being, and that has changed how local authorities are required by law um, to offer assistance to these people that are now really struggling with housing crisis. So can you um, just very briefly outline the changes that have taken place with the housing redu uh, Homelessness Reduction Bill and uh, what we're three weeks in now to the new delivery, can you just give me some understanding of the, the pressures that your departments are, are now experiencing? Well, certainly in terms of the pressures, it's, it is still very early days. I think the real pressure for us uh, has been preparing for the new Act. So it's getting the, the processes, the procedures, the, the tools that we have available to us in, in, in place to allow us to hit the ground running. We've obviously done that working closely with the partners. We've done it working closely with the government as well. We've had visits from government who have sort of given us a fairly positive uh, response in terms of what we are intending to do, how we're intending to deal with the Act. And we've, we're in a fortunate position in East Riding that we've, we've managed to coincide the, the review of our homelessness strategy and the preparation of a new homelessness strategy really with the introduction of the new Act. So I think a lot of what we've got in there in terms of a, a shift more to, even more to prevention, to, to homelessness relief, to trying to anticipate what we need to do in terms of working with other partners, other public bodies. I think we're, we're probably in quite a fortunate position there. Probably the big challenge for us in terms of delivering that service is the fact that the new Act does introduce a lot more for us to do. So I think we'd probably all say that what it's asking us to do is good. It's getting us to work earlier with people who are likely to become homeless, so the, the timescales have extended quite considerably. So again, that's all very positive, because anything we can do at the front end of that process to avoid crisis clearly has to be seen as a, as a very positive thing. Unfortunately, with new duties come additional work, and I think that's a real pressure for us. We have some additional funding that government's given to us in the short term, 
Whether that's going to be enough for us to allow, to con allow us to continue what we need to do remains to be seen. And frankly, three weeks in, I don't think we can really tell yet. So Dave, can you perhaps add uh, some detail as to the, the actual changes? Yeah. It's not just that you're having to offer support much earlier. There are actually new categories of people that you're having to offer that support to. Sometimes um, it really helps when you come with a document that tells you what the changes are. <laughs> so, um, in essence, one of the things that um, it's changed is the point at which local authorities have to take on board responsibility for people that are potentially going to be homeless. And essentially that's been moved further back in the process. So currently, or previously, three weeks ago it was 28 days, now it's 56 days. So the reality of that is more people are going to come through the door, knocking on the door, worried that they're going to become homeless. Last year, Hull uh, prevented somewhere in the region of five to 6,000 people in the city becoming homeless. And that's on the 28-day duty. Uh, so we anticipate that will go up very, very considerably, at least by a third. So has an impact. The vast majority of those people that fear they're going to be homeless don't become homeless, either because they solve the problem themselves, they manage to deal with their mortgage lenders, they manage to deal with their landlords, or because we intervene in some way in a system. So it really is a bit hard to tell exactly what that's going to mean, but, but we anticipate Certainly the numbers of referrals coming forward to increase significantly. The other responsibility it gives on us is to do individual action plans for each of those in people that come forward with potential risks of homelessness. So there's, there's more work to be done with those that come forward and there'll be more coming forward. It also places on us certain responsibilities for different categories, as Jerome said, particularly issues around care leavers. And we've got a lot going on in Hull, particularly looking around care leavers. And then the other thing that, that it does is it requires uh, other public sector bodies that become aware of people that are potentially going to become homeless to refer them to us. So it places a duty on them as well. We anticipate not only the, the 28 to 56 day change, but actually that may have an impact as well. On the whole, you've got to say that's all good news, actually. You know, actually getting earlier upstream, giving you more chance to prevent things going, going wrong pulling together the agencies, it's, it's all potentially good news. As John said, the government have put their hand in the pocket to some degree, and for Hull, they've given us about 400k per annum for the next two to three years to, to actually plan for some of that. So we're doing quite a lot around things like outreach, looking at how our, our housing option service operates, and we've put some more staff in there already. But at this point, we are, we are really sort of best guessing rather than being able to properly say it's had a massive impact. Across England, uh, rough sleeping has seen quite dramatic increases. Um, the number of people rough sleeping on the streets of England has more than doubled since 2005, or was it 2010 even, 2010. Um, if we are going to tackle the problem of rough sleeping, those people that are having the most acute housing crisis, we need innovation. And so we're actually joined now by a couple of people that are going to just give us a little bit of detail about some of the innovation within the homelessness sector. Um, we have Emma Dallimore and Sam Bell from Holiday Swine in Mind. And Mind are actually currently putting together a Housing First project. I think Housing First is something we're all going to hear a great deal more about over the next dec decade or two. Finland, for example, have used the Housing First model to almost eliminate rough sleeping across Finland. 
Tell us about how Housing First is developing on the ground in Hull and East Riding. Really, in, uh, in, in its truest form, the Housing First service is really developing with the East Riding Council. That's, um, we've been involved in a, a pilot with the East Riding. It's still in planning stages. It's not got up and running. The main difficulty being identifying a property in the right area where people want to actually live because that's part of the Housing First model is giving people choice in where they live. <clears throat> so we were, for example, offered a property in Anleby where we're going to go with that, but the people we had on our referral list, nobody wanted to live in Anleby. It took them away from the social networks, places that they knew. So we're still kind of like in the beginning stages of that. Well, everything's set up and ready to go once we've got the property we can identify people in the right area. Uh, the Housing First model, um, the large hostel system or multiple occupancy simply doesn't work no. with Housing First, does it? So tell me about the sort of properties that work and where you might find those properties. Well, the Housing First model puts housing at the heart of everything. It's, it's looking at the person and, and saying, housing is a basic need for somebody. Let's find that person a home and let them live there. Um, it's looking really at one bed flats or apartments in an area where they want to live in a, in a property in a condition that they can live in and everything that Sam and I go and look at we say would we live there and if we think we would live there then you know we will offer it to people um, in the same vein, we talked to East Riding councillors that have been really good with this and they're willing to make improvements to some of the properties in order to make them to a standard that, that's, that's good for somebody to live in. So who, who makes the ideal Housing First tenant? Because Housing First itself isn't for everybody that, that becomes homeless, is it? Mm -hmm. the, the, one of the main things about the Housing First model is that somebody, <coughs> the tenancy is not attached to the support, so they do not have to engage with with the support. Um, the ideal tenant would obviously, I think there's five areas of criteria and there have to be three out of those five. So mental health, ex-offending, addictions, um, homeless or at risk of being homeless. So multiple disadvantage, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, or multiple need um, with that person. And somebody who, who wants a roof over the head, who wants a home. <laughs> So Housing First seems to be flipping uh, the, the model on its head. At the moment, people are told you cannot access services and you, know, you cannot access accommodation um, unless you're dry from drink mm -hmm. and free from drugs and that sort of thing. Yeah. This is a complete sea change, is that right? It is, yeah. What Housing First does is places trust with the person. So it's saying to that person, we're trusting you, you know, you have this home and we're going to let you live there and you know what, they might mess up a couple of times, they might, they might get things wrong, but by trusting somebody and giving them confidence and having that ambition for them, that tends to, it's why it's been successful in other countries, that tends to then give them hope and gives them aspiration and makes them want to do well for themselves and make the tenancy work. I've been following the Housing First development um, sort of around the globe really uh, for quite a number of years now and there's a statistic that always sort of you know floats my boat and that is something along the lines of over 80% of people that access a Housing First model uh, I think 80 or 90% more likely to be sustaining their own tenancy two years after accessing that model. 
Housing First has become the model across North America to tackle um, rough sleeping. It's all very common in Canada, very common in Australia too. So it's quite exciting really to see that the first Housing First models are, are beginning to flourish in the UK. I don't know about you, but my mind is fried this morning now. I'm ready for lunch. Uh, there's been lots of discussion, lots of, I've made copious notes about all these different things we've heard about this morning. I'm taking one thing away perhaps, and that is, we've met this morning to discuss people that are in crisis. Seems to me, and this is just a personal comment, that many of the systems are in crisis too. Of course, the only way we're going to do anything about that is if we continue to exercise our voices. And that's what I've been doing this morning, re recording these podcasts. You'll be able to hear them on the Humber Help website early next week. So that's humberhelp.co.uk. So, um, Kate, do you want to quick wrap up? Again, I just want to thank you all for coming, and thank you so much for our speakers and the panel. I know it can be a bit nerve-wracking sometimes, but I think it's been a fantastic morning. I've learned tons. I hope you have too. Please do fill in your feedback forms, and again, I'd just like to give a big round of applause to the panel for the other panel today. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you.